May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. My friend Mark um, is a funeral director. And uh, he, he owns this little funeral home in Bremen, Ohio, which is down near Columbus, a, um, just a short drive from Columbus, and kind of in this really small town, though, um, just a, a few thousand people. It, it's a tiny little town. Anyway, we were down in Bremen this, this weekend. Our son Zachary um, has his birthday today, his 20th birthday, so we wanted to go down and see Zach and take some stuff to him and take him out to dinner and that sort of stuff, and, and so we did. And we stayed with our friends, Mark and Sherry, who, who live in the funeral home in Bremen. And some people think it's odd to live in a funeral home. You know, they, they think that that's a, a little uncomfortable. And um, I don't know, it doesn't really bother me because I've been friends with Mark for well over 20 years now. And, and he's always been in this business and, and we've always known them and always spent time with them at the funeral home. And, and so we've even stayed with them a lot of times and even when they have clients. Um, I found that these clients are particularly quiet. Uh, they don't make a lot of noise. And so it really doesn't bother me. Um, and, and so the thing about his job, though, as a funeral director that I think is so difficult, it's not the handling of the sort of human remains, the, the issue of dealing with a person who's, who's passed on. Um, because I've actually helped Mark in that area, going with him on, on calls to... To, uh, to pick up a, a body and to take them back to the funeral home. It's not sitting with a family and making sort of prearrangements, uh, thinking about what's going to happen at the end of life, even though for some that might seem a bit morbid. The thing that seems so difficult about his job is that every day he's dealing with death. I mean, he's just constant. It's every single day. If you ever meet my friend Mark, you'll understand straight away that he's a perfect person for this. I mean... He has the best temperament. Um, he, he cares about people with a genuine, um, you know, caring. It's, it's nothing put on at all. He's absolutely, he, he treats every person, I've seen this, like they're his own family. And so it's no wonder that, that he is, uh, you know, such a success in this business. But every day, every time he does business, it's the business of death and dying. Every time, it's sadness. So when the phone rings, two things happen in, in Mark's world. And, and we've talked about this. On the one hand, this is the perpetuity of the family. It means they get to eat. The, the, the lights stay on. The kids stay in college. All the sort of things that have to happen when the phone rings. But it also means that in a couple hours, there's going to be a family crying in the front room. It's going to be dealing with sadness. This is not a life for the faint of heart. Not at all. As a clergyman myself, I'm 17 years in ministry, I've dealt a lot with this. I mean, death is part of what I do as well. It's part of my vocation. But Mark's, his vocation is funerals all the time. Mine includes them. When his phone rings, somebody has died. When my phone rings, it might mean that. It might mean somebody's in the hospital. But it also might mean... That somebody in my parish invited me to a party or, or that I get to go and um, you know, do a wedding for somebody. The announcement of, a, of an engagement and, and the planning of a, of a wedding. It might be that a baby is going to be born and a baptism needs to be scheduled. So the hard part of being a priest is dealing with, with death and dying and grief. It's difficult to be with somebody as they, they pass from time into eternity. And I know what that feels like and I, 
I've seen it more times than I ever care to to number. But it doesn't deal with all of it. There's the good part of it. The, there's the, the, the good upside, the, the doing weddings, the, you know, the blessing of, of families and homes and, and Bibles and church furniture and baptizing babies. There's perhaps nothing more delightful to the life of a priest in ministry than to baptize a baby. You get to gather up here, you know, right in the front of the church. With a mom and a dad, you know, and maybe a couple godparents. And you look out into the congregation and there's grandma and grandpa and aunts and uncles and friends and all the people of the church. You know, there's probably the little brother up front with a, you know, the clip on tie, you know, <laughs> his shirt tail hanging out. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely delightful. And it's so much fun. And I have photos, all sorts of photos of all, of, you know, probably not all of them, but many of the babies that we baptized. And if I was to show you those out in the, um, the narthex during coffee hour, and I just pulled out these pictures and looked at them, immediately you would smile. I mean, everybody looks at these baptism pictures and it, it makes you smile. You know, there's this baby and this family and everybody's eyes are right fixed upon the baby and they're, they're, they're happy and they're excited and smiling. And when you see it, you would smile too. It's a great and joyful moment. But the thing about infant baptism is that it's a totally passive event for the infant, isn't it? I mean, this little baby is brought in the arms of his or her parents, carried to the front of the church, handed to the priest. The priest pours water upon the baby. Um, the, the, The whole act is the parents saying, we give ourselves to God, we give this infant to God, we ask for God to do something on behalf of this, but nobody expects the infant to do anything. I mean, it's, a, it's an infant child. You just hope it doesn't cry, right? I mean, it's, it's hanging out there and watching what is being done to this child. Joseph and Mary. Joseph and Mary, little baby Jesus... They do exactly what the law prescribes. When he's eight days old, they have him circumcised. And then about a month later, they take him to the temple. They take him to the temple to offer a sacrifice as is commanded in the book of Leviticus. Let me read to you a passage from Leviticus 12. When the days of the mother's purification are completed, following the birth of a child, whether for a son or a daughter, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, that is, at the temple then, A lamb in its first year for a burnt offering, and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering. He shall offer it before the Lord and make atonement on her behalf. Then she shall be clean. This is the law for her who bears a child, male or female. If she cannot afford a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement on her behalf, and she shall be clean. I want, you to, I want you to get this image in your mind. Like you have this image of, of me and a, a baby and a family gathered here at the, at the front of the church for a baptism. I want you to get this different image in your mind. An image of a very large temple building. Okay, And, and up the steps of this temple come this young couple. They, they look like peasants. I mean, they're very poorly dressed. They're, they're in shabby sort of clothes. Joseph is probably 25 to 30 years of age. And he's carrying in his hand a little cage. And in this cage are two little birds. Okay? And he's bringing with him his bride. And this is really going to grate against your sensibilities, but please don't judge them by 21st century standards. His bride is probably only 13 or 14. 
Okay? And she is clutching in her arms this little baby five weeks old. I mean, they're a sort of ragtag couple coming up the steps. Nothing impressive about them at all. Very, very ordinary. And as they go into the temple, and before they even get to a priest, before they ever find a clergyman, here comes this old man, Simeon. I always thought of Simeon as a priest, you know, that he was like, but he's not. He's just this old guy who's hanging out in the temple. He's very devout. He prays a lot. People who are old and devout and hang around a church a lot, you know, might be thought by some a little eccentric. And yet here he is, Simeon's there. And he comes up to Mary and he asks for the baby. There's another older woman, Anna. Well, in her 80s, and she comes and she is there too. And the text says, Anna never leaves the temple. She's always there. You know, can you imagine the priest showing up to work in the morning? And there's Anna waiting on him as he arrives to work. As he leaves, she stays there in the evening. And Joseph and Mary come up and they see this two eccentric couple. Or this the two eccentric people, not a couple. The old man Simeon asked for the baby and listen to what he says. Verse 27 of the passage, guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms. And he blessed, and praised God rather. Simeon takes this little baby into his arms, praises God, and he breaks out in song. Master, now you are dismissing your servant peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared for all peoples. A light for the revelation of the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. I can die in peace, he says. I've seen the Lord's Messiah. When I baptize a baby, people always have the same thoughts. Will the baby cry? Will the mother cry? Will Joe drop the baby? You know, these are the sort of things that kind of run through their heads when they're seeing it. Simeon sees this baby And before he even gets to the priest, he takes him from his mother's arms and says, God is saving the world. He sees this. And Anna does the same. She comes and she sees this baby and she starts telling everybody, look, here's evidence that God is going to save the world. Right here. In this this little baby. I wonder how many people, Joseph and Mary walking up the steps, Joseph with his little birdcage, Mary clutching her little baby, wearing rags, kind of of clothing, nothing fancy at all, looking rather pitiful and poor. Listen, if they were not poor, Joseph would have on the leash a lamb. He would have a lamb and one little bird in a cage. But because he's too poor to afford a lamb, he's bringing two little pigeons in a cage. And so he's walking up the steps, and Mary with him, and they're, I mean, they might as well have driven a 78 gremlin, you know, with, um, you know, like a rusted floorboards in it. Anybody ever have a gremlin? Anyway, and, and, you know, show up in this. I, I wonder how many people saw this little family and just kind of looked past them. You know, nothing impressive about them at all. Or maybe they saw it, and they didn't see God saving the world. They saw weakness and vulnerability. They saw Mary holding this little child and saw nothing strong about that at all. Simeon saw light to the Gentiles and glory for Israel. Anna saw the redemption of the world. 
in the presence of this little baby. And I always wonder what everybody else saw. And at the presentation of Jesus, this is the feast of the day, I wondered what the world sees in the Jesus that we present to the world. I mean, what does the world see in the Jesus that we present? Is it the Jesus that is the authentic Jesus? The one who, who you know, goes with his poor little family up the steps? Authentic in all that he is? No pomp and circumstance? Not even a little parade in front of him. Just his little family going up the steps. What do they see? If you ever read Anne Lamont, if you haven't, you should. She'll, she'll push back against you in a lot of ways, but you should read her. She says this, we, You will know for sure that you have created God and made an idol out of God. You will know for sure you have made an idol out of God when your God shares all your political opinions. <laughs> That's a tough one, isn't it? When your God shares all your political opinions... He's not your God at all, right? He's a God of your making. And I sometimes wonder, does the world see the Jesus of... Oh, I know. Pull your toes back. Does he see the Jesus of Fox News or MSNBC or NPR or whatever your, whatever your bent is? Is that the Jesus that we present to the world? Is that the one that our world sees? I'll move on from that because I know that's too uncomfortable. But what about the Jesus of religious complexity? I mean, I thought about that one too, that the Jesus of religious complexity where, where we have this kind of religious system that's so tight and intertwined and, 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 and so figured out that someone has to, you know, to approach this sort of Jesus, they'd have to know all sorts of things about religious doctrine and theology. Is that Jesus approachable at all? Is that the Jesus that we present to the world, an esoteric, obtuse, mystically connected Jesus? Or maybe the happy, clappy Jesus. You know, if you, don't, if you don't do it like this, you don't really love Jesus. Or the sour, dour Jesus, who is if you, you know, don't come with a long face and unhappy, then you can't love Jesus. Or, or the rules and regulations Jesus. You ever been there? Oh man, I lived there for a while. That was a, that was a really uncomfortable place to be. The Jesus that we present to the world is Jesus of the Bible? Or the Jesus of our own making? Is it the authentic one? The one that we find in Scripture? I mean, you've got to kind of dig through a little bit to see that Jesus' parents take two birds because they can't afford a lamb. There's a, a, a great review. You've seen it. Um, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You remember that? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? Where they're searching for the, uh, the chalice, right? The, uh, um, what do you call it? The, uh, the um, What's that? What's that? The Holy Grail, yeah. I started slipping Monty Python. I knew that wasn't right. Yeah, the, the Holy Grail. They're, they're searching for the, 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 the chalice, the chalice of Jesus, right? And, and so at the very end of the film, into this little room, there's this, um, you know, 2,000-year-old knight or whatever who's guarding it. He's been miraculously kept alive. And there's the bad guy who's in there too, you know, the, uh, the German whatever and... And so he, he first chooses the chalice. I can't remember the scene exactly, but it seems to me that he takes this really beautiful, ornate chalice. You know? And if you choose the right one, well, you have eternal life. And, and if you choose the wrong one in the film, of course, you, you die almost instantly. And so he chooses this beautiful chalice, this, this, the bad guy does, and, and he drinks from it, and he waits, he thinks he's okay, 
And then all of a sudden, well, if you've not seen this, it was, came out in 1983, so too bad. Anyway, it, it, his hair like, goes really long, it gets really old, super fast, and, and you know, just turns into dust right in front of your eyes. And then Indiana has to pick out the chalice. You remember this? And so he kind of looks through, and he, he's trying to decide which one it would be. All these beautiful chalices, scores and scores of them around. And then there's this old wooden one. And he says, that's the cup of the carpenter. And he chooses it. And I think the knight says something to him like, you've chosen well. I wonder about the Jesus we present to the world. And I want it to be, at least for me, and I know for you as well, always to be the Jesus of the Bible. Because he's the one who brings light and salvation and hope. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.